0: As we turn our attention now to the reading and proclamation of God's word, let us bow for a word of prayer. Let us pray. O Lord, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. So illumine now our hearts and our minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word proclaimed, we might receive with joy what you have to say to us today. All these prayers we make in the name of Christ, the Word made flesh. Amen. The Old Testament lesson is Psalm 146. Listen now for God's word to you. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God all my life long. Do not put your trust in princes, in mortals in whom there is no help. When their breath departs, they return to the earth. On that very day, their plans perish. Happy are those whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the strangers. He upholds the orphan and the widow, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, for all generations. Praise the Lord. And the New Testament lesson is John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. Before we read it, a few observations about this text. If you're looking at it in your Bibles, you'll notice that it's bracketed or perhaps even printed in italics. Uh, This is because this is a sort of floating Jesus tradition that took a long time to settle in the New Testament. It was almost certainly not a part of John's gospel originally. It can be found in early manuscripts elsewhere in John, and even in one case, it shows up in a manuscript of Luke. So it was sort of floating around before it finally settled here in John chapter 8. But this doesn't mean that it's not an authentic Jesus tradition. As you'll see in a moment, it contains its usual cast of characters. You've got the Pharisees who are causing a ruckus, trying to trap Jesus. You have someone who is uh, an outcast of society who's vulnerable. And then you have Jesus handling the situation masterfully. What's more, this is a text that was probably much more difficult for its original hearers than it is for us today. In our world, we are fond of the phrase, uh, don't judge others. And so we like this text because it shows Jesus being merciful and gracious. But in the first and second centuries, for this text's first readers, it would have been much more problematic, perhaps even more offensive. So it's unlikely that this text would have been kept in scripture had it not been for the reason that it is authentic. Sometimes when scholars study a biblical text and there's a discrepancy, they usually think that the harder reading is probably original, because if you were working with a biblical text, you'd be much less likely to make a text harder and much more likely to make it easier. So all of that to say that although this text is bracketed in your Bibles, we can be pretty confident that this was an authentic Jesus text. So listen now, once again, for God's word as it comes from John chapter 8. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and making her stand before all of them, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? They said this to test him so that that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And once again, he bent down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they went away, one by one, beginning with the elders and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus straightened up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, sir. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go your way. And from now on, do not sin again. Friends, this is the word of the Lord thanks be to God. One of the things that makes Jesus's teachings so remarkably compelling is his ability to prompt people into an encounter with themselves. On one occasion after another, Jesus thwarts a person's attempt to reject and disparage another, not by taking issue with the premise of their rejection, but instead by turning the question back on the accuser and holding up a mirror to the self-righteous and making them realize that they cannot pass their own test. So it goes in our New Testament passage today, the Pharisees bring before Jesus a woman caught in adultery and declare that by law she should be stoned to death. And then they demand that Jesus weigh in and thereby align himself either with them or against them. He must either be for the law or against the law, for the woman or against the woman, on the side of righteousness or the side of sinfulness. The Pharisees were notorious for this kind of black-and-white thinking. They had reduced generic laws to specific decrees that could be applied to all manner of scenarios in everyday life. They had a sort of party purity list that dictated what a person must believe about each and every issue in order to be an insider and they were obsessed as we see in this text with trying to trick outsiders into saying something that they could then attack them for saying sounds a lot like our political climate in the united states today doesn't it we're reeling not just from this year's election but from the months of relentless attack ads hours of cable news soap operas, and the vitriol of Facebook posts and tweets. The political climate that has been created across the spectrum divides our world into these kind of black and white categories of right and wrong, moral and immoral, and even, believe it or not, human and subhuman. That's right, a survey in February of registered voters in the United States found that 69% of Republicans and 64% of Democrats said the opposing party is a threat to the United States and its people. 52% of Republicans and 49% of Democrats said the opposing party is not just worse for politics, they are downright evil. 28% of Republicans and 26% of Democrats said that if the opposing party is going to behave badly, they should be treated like animals. And 18% of members of both parties said that violence could be justified if the other party wins the 2020 election. These figures are remarkably horrifying, not just because of the high percentage of people who agreed with the statements, but also because about the same number of Republicans and Democrats answered the same way Sometimes we think of the political spectrum as one long horizontal line, and on one side you have the far left, and on the other side the far right. But as much as both sides don't want to hear it, the political spectrum is really more like a horseshoe, isn't it? Where people on the far ends of the spectrum are actually remarkably close and remarkably alike. When the Pharisees confront Jesus with a demand for black and white thinking, he refuses to get sucked into the vortex. Instead, he, in effect, holds up a mirror and forces them to encounter what is going on inside themselves. Again, notice that Jesus doesn't argue with the woman's alleged culpability or the verdict the Pharisees had rendered according to the law of the land. Instead, he simply tells them, let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Jesus holds up a mirror to the Pharisees' accusations, and with one masterful line, he forces them to turn their gaze away from the woman and to look inwardly at themselves. The Pharisees always want to point to the sins of another, sins that the party hates enough to provoke them to violence, and in this case, even to death. But Jesus forces them to ask the question of themselves. What are the sins within you that have nurtured and cultivated the vitriol you feel toward this woman? Philosopher Peter Rollins says that humans tend to think of ourselves as though we stand outside of society as neutral observers, and based on purely rational inquiry, we think we can determine for ourselves what we should love and what we should hate. But we're kidding ourselves, Rollins says. Instead, we are in fact deeply enmeshed, not only in what we love, but also in what we hate. And ultimately, what we hate actually tells us something about what's going on inside ourselves. Consider the liberal Christian who spends all her time on social media attacking conservative Christians. She thinks that she's a guardian of inclusivity and love, that she's a defender of the meek and oppressed. But what's going on inside of her that's fueling that outrage? What is the hurt or fear or shame that reinforces that behavior? Or consider the conservative Christian who spends his time on the street corner outside the stadium, warning of the fires of hell. He thinks he is a beacon of truth and righteousness, called to declare judgment on an evil, rotten society. But what is it in him that's fueling his outrage? What is the hurt or fear or shame that reinforces his behavior? You see, there are thousands of issues in our world that we could care about, but we don't hear much about the demonstrably rigged elections in Belarus or Tanzania, for instance or violence and genocide against the Rohingya or Uyghur Muslims in Asia. We stand far away from these things, and we don't tend to get too riled up about them, awful as they are. Instead, the issues we choose to get enraged about as a society tell us something about ourselves. They tell us what we're entangled in, what we're enmeshed in, And while we may want to think that we're really just outside observers of the things we hate, rendering a neutral verdict, in fact there is oftentimes something within us that we don't want to confront that is related to the very thing we hate. If this political season is to have any redemptive value for our society, it will only come if we're willing to confront whatever it is within ourselves that has created this toxic partisan climate we're in. It will only come if we're willing to take our eyes off of those we've come to despise, off of the other political party, and take a look in the mirror. We have to ask ourselves why it is that anger and hate have proliferated among us as a nation. The truth is that participating in the rage machine of our preferred political party is giving us something. It's satiating some kind of desire within us that keeps us coming back for more, right? It's quenching some kind of thirst within us, though only as water that will only make us thirsty again. What are we getting out of our anger? What sort of thrill or satisfaction or self-righteousness are we getting addicted to in our culture That's prompting this disintegration of our civil discourse to such a pitiful place. You see, so often when we reject another, what we're in fact trying to do subconsciously is reject something of ourselves that we don't want to confront. What we're trying to do is avoid an encounter with ourselves that might lead us to the painful realization that we may not be everything we sometimes convince ourselves we are. By telling the Pharisees that the person among them who is without sin should be the first to throw a stone at the sinner, Jesus ushers the Pharisees into this kind of confrontation with themselves. And he doesn't need to say anything more to them, and they don't need to say anything more to him. Instead, they each silently turn away and vanish one by one. This moment of self-confrontation that Jesus brings upon them is what Peter Rollins describes as the trauma of the gaze. It's a moment when we realize that we're in fact entangled in the very thing we hate. It's a moment we realize that we're projecting something within ourselves onto another. And it's very unpleasant. It's not something we want to do. It makes us like the Pharisees want to silently turn away and vanish. As we reflect honestly on what an ugly campaign season this has been, I think it's time to admit that we're in need of a serious confrontation with ourselves. It doesn't matter if the election result makes you happy or sad, I think we all share this common need to a certain extent. We spent plenty of time picking up stones to throw across the aisle, but the time has come to gaze into the mirror and ask ourselves how we have become so embroiled in our opposition of others. But the good news is that with Christ as the one who convicts and reforms us, the situation is not beyond hope. Christ encounters us, after all, not with a word of condemnation, but with a word of grace. And so we must first of all learn to be gracious with ourselves if we're ever to learn to be gracious with anyone across the aisle. And insofar as we, the church, can be a community of grace, we can also be a community that helps foster an atmosphere in which the trauma of the gaze can occur in a way that's safe and healthy and ultimately builds us up and makes us grow as the body of Christ. Because such an encounter requires the presence of those with whom we disagree. And if we can, despite our differences, share a common humility and a common desire to grow in love. We can be to one another as iron sharpens iron. Our differences can strengthen our unity as a church and bear witness to the world that we need one another. And this world needs that witness. In fact, we need our differences in order to be the best we can be. Because if we don't have healthy sources of tension in our lives, then we're going to find tension and seek it out in all kinds of unhealthy ways. I think this political season has made that obvious, and the presence of the internet and television is only going to continue, and so there will be plenty of unhealthy sources of tension for us to find if we don't find healthy ones. But ultimately this healthy tension is how we grow in wisdom and understanding. Healthy tension comes when we're able to relate to those with whom we disagree with an honest understanding about what it is within us that prompts that disagreement. And if we have this understanding within ourselves, we're more readily able to understand others, even while we continue to stand up for what we believe in. Our story from John ends with Jesus and the accused woman standing together. For all the Pharisees have quietly disappeared under the trauma of the gaze, after an encounter with their own darkness. But Jesus is not yet done prompting these encounters with the self. To the woman now, he asks, where are they? Does no one condemn you? Jesus prompts the woman to encounter within herself all the voices of condemnation she has absorbed. She is forced to encounter the narrative of rejection she has internalized in order to realize that, in fact, those voices are now gone. Her accusers have vanished, those who would dehumanize her have departed, and the only one left is the Lord Jesus declaring that neither does he condemn her. Any voice of self-negation that she might have within herself is now to be released. She has been set free to go and live a new life. If our encounter with ourselves in light of this political season leaves us feeling hopeless, feeling broken, feeling weak, take heart. Jesus does not lead us into despair. He leads us to new life, a life free from the condemnation of others and ourselves. He silences the accuser and sets us free as new creatures to leave our sin behind. And if that doesn't prompt us to reach a reconciliatory hand across the aisle, I don't know what will. So may it be so. Alleluia and thanks be to God. Amen.